We live in an incredibly anxious time. Anyone could tell you this, right? Anxiety has been on the rise. Um, we have a huge percentage of our population who is on some sort of antidepressant or anti-anxiety medication. And what's so shocking is that we we live in one of the most prosperous times, I mean, the most prosperous time in human history. We have everything we need very often physically, but so many of us aren't happy. And that number just seems to keep going up. So why are we so anxious? What is it about about us that makes us anxious? Some say it's technology and social media. Maybe we could point to unhealthy diets or changing moral values. I'm sure all of those are legitimate to some degree. But more important than that is the question of how do we respond rightly to anxiety? What is the response we can have to trust in God, to give our anxieties to him, and to receive peace from God? This is such an important question, and this psalm gives us some very practical approaches to anxiety. So if you're dealing with stress and with anxiety, this psalm is a place you can go to again and again. And this psalm, it reminds me uh, that these texts and scriptures are able to slowly change our beliefs about God and through that to change our emotional response as well. Um, we are emotional creatures and often emotions seem to kind of happen to us, but emotions flow out of our heart, our beliefs, the things that we hold to most deeply. So we're going we're gonna to look at this psalm. We'll look at it in four sections. So verses 1 to 8, we see the psalmist crying for redemption. In verses 9 to 13, we see the psalmist pleading for mercy. Verses 14 to 18, we see him turn to anticipating salvation. And then in the final section, we see him responding in praise. So there's real movements in this in this uh, psalm. So let's look at the first section, verses 1 to 8, crying for redemption. Verse 1, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me a strong fortress to save me. Notice in these opening verses and in the three, verses three and four as well, the repeated phrases, repeated themes that all are related of taking refuge. He uses that word refuge again and again. The idea of fortress or of a rock that he uses that a couple times. Um, it's amazing to me how many times these themes have been repeated and we're only 20% of the way through the Psalms. These themes of God being a refuge, a fortress, a rock for us, how often that's repeated. And what it says to me is not something that we should just kind of tune that out because we already know that, but that these are realities that need to be hammered into us, that we need to hear again and again. We need to, we need to know who our refuge is. And when we read those kinds of, of words, that kind of language in the Psalms, we should think over and over again, what do I take refuge in? When things are difficult, what do I turn to? When, when I'm stressed out or anxious, what do I look to to fix my problem? Whatever that is, that's your functional refuge, but it shouldn't be. It should be God. God alone should be our refuge. And what he's looking for in terms of God being a refuge is that God wouldn't let him be put to shame. When we hear that word shame, we probably think as in our culture of some sort of an internal state of shame but he probably means really some sort of public disgrace. So these enemies of, of David are looking to undermine him and destroy him, and the best way to do that would be to publicly shame him in some way, to, to make him look like a fraud or to 
you know, put some sin on him or some disgrace. So David is praying to God for his protection, to protect him from these people who are seeking to tear him down. And we're going to see in this psalm, there's two apparent sources of this anxiety or stress for David. One is his enemies, and the other is his own sin. So both of these, um, and it, they're probably you know interrelated or something, but both of these are a, a cause or a root cause of anxiety, but he's going to have a response and a way to trust in God in response to both of those. Verse 3, For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. David faced incredible dangers, right? We see, we see this all throughout David's life, especially his early life where he's running from Saul, which is probably the, the kind of origin of a lot of these metaphors that he uses here, the, of a, a rock of refuge, as he talks about. Um, and throughout, he's hiding different places. He's in these mountainous caves or maybe these plateaus lifted above other people. This is what he means when he speaks of these rocks or fortresses that he goes to. And so because of his experience, again, he's asking God to guard him from this trap they've set. He saw God do this for him again and again with Saul, who was constantly looking to ensnare him or trap him or find him and capture him. And he's asking God to do it now in his current context. He's asking God to do it for his name's sake. Again, just like we saw in the last Psalm and in other Psalms, he's asking for God to do this for the sake of his own benefit. So he can be shown to be glorious and the covenant-keeping God that he is. Verse 5 is a very famous verse. It says, Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Now this phrase might ring a bell for you. If you know the Bible well, it for, for sure will ring a bell for you because these are the same words Jesus Christ says on the cross in one of the, the famous sayings he has on the cross, one of them is this, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now in this context, it's important to understand it in this current context to see then later how Jesus is gonna use it. In this context, it's expressing the psalmist's dependence on God to rescue him from danger and from death. Um, the wording he uses here is very interesting. Uh, often when he speaks in this way of committing himself to God, he might use the word soul or his, his self or his life. But here he says the word spirit, which is in Hebrew, that word ruach, which, which means um, breath or wind. It's the same, kind, same word for that. And it's you know, somewhat related to the idea, at least conceptually, it's related to when God breathes into man the breath of life. It's a different word in Hebrew but a similar idea that the spirit is the, the life force. Um, it's tied to the force that God uses to create and sustain the world as well. That's how that word ruach is often used. So when he's committing his spirit to God, he's not just committing his physical well-being to God, he's committing his life force, so to speak, his, the deepest part of his, him, his self. There's no stronger way to depict full trust in God to save you from danger than to say, I commit my spirit to you. And of course, it takes on a whole new meaning when Jesus takes those words on his lips. And we'll see that. We'll come back to that at the end of this video. Verse 6, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. That, that phrase, worthless idols, 
is really two Hebrew words that essentially mean nothing and worthless. So uh, that's what idols are. They're, they're worthless. They're empty. They're nothing. They provide no benefit. That's what it means to trust in anything that is less than God. And so idolatry is always foolish. It's interesting to hear that he focuses on his hatred of evildoers. It's kind of weird for us to read those words and to apply them to our context. But you have to understand in the Israelite context, they were commanded to, to hate evildoers. In fact, in Deuteronomy 13, we see when someone is an idolater and they entice you to turn away from God, the response of the people of Israel is to kill them. It's capital punishment. We don't have the same thing today, right? In part because we don't have a nation that is, you know, the Christian nation. We have different nations where Christians live, but we are a people without um, the government they had in the Old Testament. So there's a different context and there's a different reaction. We still hate idolatry. We still revolt against it. But because we hate this evil, we want to see evildoers saved out of their sin, not destroyed in their sin. Verse 7, he says, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction, you have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of my enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Interestingly, verses 1 through 8 almost are a complete psalm. They, they have sort of a tension and then a resolution at the end. But really, so, so he's, this is kind of the first section but he kind of shows how God has brought him out of this, and he's going to go back and reflect on it again. What we see here is that he can rejoice in the midst of his anxieties. Right? At this point, probably the problem hasn't been dealt with, and yet he's still looking to entrusting God. It's as if it's already dealt with. And he says he can rejoice in his anxieties. Why? Well, he says why. He says, because you have seen my affliction, you have known the distress of my soul. So God sees and he knows accurately. It's an incredible comfort to have one who knows us perfectly and who sees everything and understands it well, right? There have been times when it's felt like, for me, no one really understands what I'm dealing with. I've always been blessed to have people that I can go to and talk to, but sometimes you get the sense that they don't really understand what you're up against. But with God, you never have that. God always sees perfectly. He knows exactly what you're going through. And this gives immense comfort, especially in those times where it feels like every single person is against you. What an amazing help in times of anxiety to know that you have a God who sees perfectly and also isn't passive in those situations, but is going to act to redeem them in his perfect justice and in his perfect timing. He will make all those things right. So God, he says here, God has not delivered him into the hand of his enemies, but has placed him in a place of protection. And I love this because the, the word hand is used again. We're going to see it one more time, but the, the word hand is used and it contrasts with verse five, where he's placed himself, he's committed himself into God's hands. And now here we see that God, being in God's hands and in his protection protects you from the hands of others. He's safe from the hands of those who would hurt him because he's held secure in God's hands. So we see the first section and we see um, this, this theme of crying for redemption. And then second, we see verses 9 to 13 where he is pleading for mercy, pleading for mercy. He turns and begins to focus on the specifics of his situation. He begins to give a very detailed description of his 
condition. And throughout this whole section, he's pleading with God to be merciful to him. So even as he's expressed his trust, he's coming back and he's reflecting on what's happening to him right now. And there's very vivid descriptions of his suffering. Verse 9, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. So it's interesting, the eye, the soul, the body are all in view. And I think he's speaking metaphorically here. So when he says that his eyes are, are wasting away, is kind of the idea. Um, what, what, he's, what he's saying here is that idea of a wasting away eyes is the opposite of clear eyes, which in the scripture are a picture of health and vitality. We've seen this in Psalm 6 as well, the same kind of idea. And so his soul and his body also speak to the totality of who he is. So he feels like he's wasting away, like he's disintegrating. That's his, his current condition. Verse 10, for my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. So he's, he's suffering and we've, we see this kind of just totality of suffering, of wasting away, of of being spent, of his body and his strength failing. The main reason for this is because of others and their plots against him. That seems to be the overwhelming theme in this chapter, but it's not the only reason. He also says here that he has sin, and the sin is causing him to waste away. We're going to see this also in Psalm 32, in the next psalm, in very vivid ways. But I think it's good to reflect here that we often underestimate the effects of sin. That obviously, you know, we know if you're a Christian, you know that uh, sin separates you from God, but also sin has this destructive impact for the totality of our lives. Every area of our lives is impacted by sin. It harms relationships, it harms our health, it harms our vitality and our focus and our effectiveness. It causes us to be unable to sleep and it causes us to, you know, wake up with, uh, you know, with a a body and a mind racked by guilt and distraction. It often takes a toll financially. Sin affects every area of our lives. And we can go through a huge list of more ways that sin destroys us. So sin is a, a comprehensive destroyer. It seeks to take in every possible way. When Satan tempts us with sin, it's because he wants to steal and kill and destroy, as we see in John 10. And the pain here that David describes is not only physical, it's also social. Look at verse 11. It says, because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. So he's again back to talking about how these enemies are seeking to destroy him. And because of whatever shame they've brought on him, he's become a complete pariah. His own neighbors don't want to be around him. Imagine if you were in a situation where people saw you and they were so in dread of you that they ran away. They, they took off running. Imagine how extreme that is. It's like he has leprosy or something. And he says he's become like a broken vessel. A broken pot is only good for being thrown away. So he's worthless. He feels disposable. He has no hope, it seems like, in this condition. But then he turns, and in verses 14 to 18, he begins anticipating salvation. That's our third major section, anticipating salvation. Verse 14 is so powerful. I love this transition. He says, but I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. 
this is emphatic language. So the I and the you in that first part, those are emphatic. The way I read it is the way it should be read. But I trust in you. That's what he's saying. He's, he's reorienting his focus, as we've seen so many times. He's choosing to set his sights on God and to remember that God is trustworthy and that God is his God, that he has a relationship with God. So there's this intentional focus for David. And this, again, is so in- instructive for us. Do you do this when you're anxious? Do you, do you take time to acknowledge the condition you're in and then to intentionally transfer your focus and to say, but I'm going to trust in God. God has not forgotten me. Verse 15, he, he builds on this. He says, my times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. This is a reminder that God is sovereign. When he says, my, my times are in your hand, that plural of time, times, is kind of interesting. It refers, I believe the best way to understand it is it refers to the moments that make up your life, the events that make up your life, the the small decisions day by day that build your life. He's not simply saying, God, you're kind of in control of all of it, but that you're intimately involved in the details and in control of every individual aspect of what I'm going through. And this is so helpful, right? Because if God is in charge, all of these events that happen, even the sins of his enemies, are meant for David's good, ultimately. God is going to direct those for his good. Now, if you don't see God as sovereign, as in control, you will always be anxious. In fact, I don't understand, if you don't believe God's in control, why are you not more anxious? You should be so much more anxious because anything could happen any moment that could send your life spinning off the rails. But if you believe God is sovereign, then there really is no reason to have extreme anxiety. There's no reason to be imprisoned by stress and by um, being tense and being fearful because God is working every detail out for our good. Verse 16, make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. He doesn't just see God as sovereign. He also longs for this greater personal relationship with God. He knows that God loves him and that God wants to respond in blessing. So he asks God to make his face shine on him, just like we see in the Aaronic blessing in Numbers chapter 6. Now, if you see God, we know in Scripture, you will die. But this longing for being able to see God face to face implies a lot of things. It implies, in part, a, a personal relationship with God. It implies the strength and the holiness to be able to see God and not be destroyed. He's longing for God to do something impossible, to give him the strength and the purity and the access to behold God face to face and to receive his blessings. And we can experience this joy if we can just see him. And someday we will. We know that Jesus gives us a way to see the Father, to be with him face to face forever. Let's go to the last section, Psalm 31 verses 19 to 24, responding in praise, responding in praise. So he ends by this response of praise. We won't read every verse here, but look at verse 19. I love this language here. He says, Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. I love the idea of God with the storehouse of goodness, abundant goodness that he's going to lavish on his people. He has this whole stockpile of good gifts for you that he's one day going to give to you in eternity. God gives many of those those things to us today, but not all of them. There is so much more waiting for God's people in our eternity with him. 
verse 23 and 24. He says, love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. So this is the final focus that God will make David strong to be able to endure these challenges. He, he encourages us with the same way. He he motivates us right, to continue to be strong, to keep looking to God, to keep uh, waiting for the Lord and, and, to, and to have strength in the midst of these challenges. Notice, notice this, God strengthening you doesn't mean he'll take you out of the challenge, but it means that he'll help you to endure and give you what you need to be strong through the challenge. We see the same reality in the life of Jesus in Luke 22 when Jesus is in Gethsemane and he's about to go to the cross and he says in Luke 22:42 he says father if you are willing remove this cup from me nevertheless not my will but yours be done and there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him so Jesus is praying in a somewhat similar way to what David's praying here. He wants to be out of this situation. He wants to be delivered from this trial. And instead, God comes and strengthens him. He sends an angel to strengthen him, which means not that he's going to remove him from the challenge, but he's going to help him to endure what's ahead. And of course, Jesus does. It's the same in our lives as well. Now, come back to that phrase as we end here and wrap this up. Come back to that phrase, into your hands I commit my spirit. When David said that in this context, he's looking for deliverance um, of his life. But when Jesus says it on the cross, Jesus is entrusting his life to God, even to the point of death. And he was entrusting that God would raise him from the dead. In other words, David wanted deliverance from death, but Jesus says the same thing to ask for something greater, for deliverance through death for resurrection. And it's, it's for this reason, right, that we could have the ultimate answers, that his death on the cross, that his facing that challenge for us, committing himself, trusting God so fully that he would give himself for us, that helps us to have answers to the greatest problems, to, to death, to sin, to condemnation that we should face. We have the answers um, in the short term as well as in the long term, right? The long term answers, we also have answers to anxiety and to worry. That if that is true, if that's the big picture of our lives, then we can also commit our spirits to God. We can trust him with the day to day because one day we're going to see God standing righteous before him because of the blood of Jesus. And when we see him, we will not be condemned.